today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. Our sin has been confronted. We have one of three choices to make. We can kill the messenger, we can deny the sin, or we can confess and be broken by the Lord. None of those were going to be easy. Each of them would have their own ramifications, their own consequences to them. But the only one which really carried any kind of hope for future peace, for future usefulness in the kingdom was the latter of the three. Every time we sin, we have the same three choices. We could kill the messenger. What I'm speaking about is we could close off the word of God in our lives. We could stop reading the word of God because when I read it, man, it brings conviction to my sin. There likely will come a time in your life where you are confronted with your sin. In Pastor David's message today, he shares that this will not be an easy task. You'll learn through the life of King David that there are three choices available. The only option that carries any future hope or peace is to confess and be broken by the Lord. Coming before the Lord like this requires humility and transparency. However, if you try to deal with your sin in another way, there is no hope for an authentic relationship with your Creator. Now here's Pastor David in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9 as he continues his message, The Warrior King, The Man of Flesh. We need to have great humility before men. Great humility. David's position, and he didn't try to push himself in on anything that was great. Man, he was a fierce warrior. Don't get me wrong. He wasn't some milk toast guy. He wasn't some mamby pamby guy. But he had great humility before men. You see that in again later in his life when Shimei is cursing him, and he's mad. You're bloodthirsty. Get out of here. You know you ought to be killed. And everything's throwing stones at David. And David's got his army behind him. He's got Joab right there. And Shimei, you know, they, they could take him. He was like a, a gnat, you know, and just a big fly swatter would take him out with no problem. But David had that humility even before a guy like Shimei. David had the humility that even with some of his enemies, he wanted to say, hey, look, I, I want to live at peace with you. We find that out also as we go through the life of David in 2 Samuel. We see that David was a man of order, and he set up an administration with responsibilities and authority within all of his kingdom, and David wasn't afraid to let men succeed. Neither was he afraid to let men fail. He would put them in a position and set them again with responsibilities and authority and allow them to do their work. In chapter 9, we see the tenderness of this warrior king. Uh, again, uh, he, he offers sanctuary to Mephibosheth, uh, the son of Jonathan. And Mephibosheth, uh, during a, one time when they were running from the enemy, uh, his, his nurse dropped him and he had been a cripple all of his life. In chapter 9, verse 6, uh, now when Mephibosheth and the son of Jonathan, the son, or the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face, prostrated himself, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, here is your servant. 
So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. The compassion shown by David. For me, I I look at that, it, it reminds me of the compassion that Christ shows for all of us. You know, every one of us, enemies of his. Every one of us, enemies of God. And yet, even in that midst, God sent Christ for us. And that's the heart that I see of David. He harbors no animosity toward any. This warrior king, he's now a man of peace. He desires to be at peace with all of his neighbors. When he hears that the king of Ammon has, has died, we, we see this also there in uh, chapter 9 or chapter 10. Uh, we, we find out the king of Ammon has died. And so David decides, well, I'm going to send an, a, a, an emissary over to Ammon. Just tell him, hey, look, we are sorry that your dad died. Uh, we, we just want to keep peace with you. But the problem is, is when they got over there, uh, the king of Ammon's son, uh, Hanun, he gets some really, really bad counsel. You know, uh, again, uh, be careful on who you get counsel of. Uh, here, this guy now, he is, he's now the king because his dad had died. So he gets his counsel, and his counsel says, oh, no, no, David is sending this emissary over. He's sending these guys over to spy on you. They're not coming nice. No, that, this, that's not the deal. You, you, be careful, be careful. So we find out in, in verse 4 of uh, chapter 10 there that, uh, again, uh, Hanun took David's servants, and uh, he shaved off half of their beards and cut off half of their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and he sent them away. There's not a whole lot underneath that robe, okay? And so when they cut that thing off right at the buttocks, there's not a whole lot covering anything at that point in time. And then they go, and they cut off half of their beard. It's not like they trimmed it up for them. No, they would cut off half the face, so half of the beard. So again, the humility, because the beard, especially for these Middle Eastern guys, man, that was a sign of virility and strength. You cut off my beard, man, that's, that's, that's a big deal. And so here he's done this, he's shamed these men. Well, David hears about this, he goes down, he meets them halfway, he says, look, you guys stay here till your beards grow out. By the way, we'll get you guys a change of clothes. We'll just stay here. And then David raises up an army. And again, they, he, he goes against them. They decide that they're going to hire armies. And so they contact these surrounding nations to help them fight against David and Israel. God gave David and Joab victory over all of these. Look down in verse 18 of uh, chapter 10. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadassar saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel, and they served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. You think, no duh. What did we sign up for here? What did you do to David that he is that fierce that, again, he's killed that many people. He's come against us with that much rage. David saw the Ammonites had done, and so he went after it. God gave them great victory. And you would think, man, let's end the story right there. Let David just get old and pass away right there. But I love God's honesty. God is so honest that he shows us 
warts, chips, stains, and all. So now this warrior king, we're looking at a man of flesh. Chapter 11. What was now a relative time of peace for Israel, and it, uh, pretty peaceful for David. Actually, uh, it opened up one of the darkest chapters in all of his life. What should have been good turned around really bad because of just a few hours worth of going the wrong way. Chapter 11, where we find the three tools of the enemy against our souls. Listen to this and please pay attention because I think that these three tools of the enemy, he uses them on all of us at different times. One of them is idleness. The second one is imagination. And the third one is capability. Capability. Much has been said about David being uh, at the wrong place at, at the wrong time. It wasn't simply that he wasn't with his soldiers. It starts out there. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon, besieged uh, Reba. But, but, but David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, he, he stayed behind. He sent him out to battle. That's not so much the problem. The problem was there was this idleness about him that allowed him to, uh, the opportunity to let his imagination run wild. Guys, you realize David had other wives. He had plenty of wives. He had other children. And even as the king, he probably had a lot of things he had to do and take care of. And yet in the middle of the night, his idleness joined forces with his imagination. Understand, imagination isn't evil. I think imagination is great. As a matter of fact, I, I believe that it's something that God gave to us to, to use for his glory. Without imagination, we wouldn't have the inventions that we have. Without imagination, we wouldn't have the music that we have. Without imaginations, we wouldn't have the art that we have. There, without imagination, there's a lot that we would be missing. But imagination has to be put in the right order. And when it is put in the right order, our imagination can actually bless many people. But just like many other tools, it can be used for the wrong. Just like many of the gifts of God, the enemy can abuse it, he can twist it, and he can make it a foul thing. And David allowed his imagination to wander beyond the boundaries that God had set for all men and for all women. And again, sexual relationships are to be within the marriage. Not before the marriage, not extra marriage, not instead of marriage, but for the marriage. And rather it's through boredom or frustration or a feeling, catch this, a feeling of entitlement. Why? I'm the king. I can do anything I want. You see, David, above all kings, knew that God was over him and that he was answerable to God. But when the flesh takes over, all of our true logic is out the window because David's imagination was able to be fulfilled actually because he was in the position of king. He now, there's the capacity, the capability. He had idleness, imagination, and as king, he had the ability or the capability to fulfill that imagination. 
David took full advantage, I think, of the capacity as a king. He researched, hey, who, who is that, by the way, down there? I just happened to see somebody on the rooftop. Who, who is that that lives next door to me? They told him who it was. But he also used that same authority to be able to acquire the object of his imagination. And as he called Bathsheba to himself, he abused then his God-granted abilities. He abused his God-granted authority then to satisfy himself at the cost of everyone else. We don't know anything about the heart of Bathsheba in this scenario. Let's just be honest about it. We really don't know. We can speculate, well, what's she doing naked up on top of the roof? Well, it was the middle of the night. If you read the story, it was the middle of the night. And David got up out of bed and went over and was scoping out the scene. Okay, So I'm not going to put any uh, guilt or anything on Bathsheba at this point. I I don't think that we know the heart of Bathsheba. Even through the rest of the story, we get no clue about where Bathsheba is in the midst of this. And I believe that God put that there or left that out actually on, on purpose. Because since we don't know anything about her culpability in this event, beloved, you need to understand, I need to understand, we all need to understand that we can only and should only assume her innocence. It's way too easy to get David off the hook and say, well, she was out there flaunting it. She could have told David no. No, she couldn't. I don't believe that she could. You're talking a Middle Eastern king. You know, all we have to do is go back to the stories that that we see again. Uh, Esther, thank you. Uh, The story of Esther when, you know, the king comes up and says, hey, I want you in my harem. She, She didn't have much of a choice. And I believe it's the same way here. I don't think Bathsheba felt that she had much of a choice. We need to assume her innocence. Scriptures even tell us that David, like I said, he he rose from the bed, middle of the night. She had every right to feel that when she was in the middle of the night, bathing on that rooftop, that she had solitude or privacy in that. It was was dark, it was night. But this man, he was the king of Israel, and he calls her into his chamber, and she, she was the wife of one of his primary soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. Some, some have said that Uriah the Hittite was even possibly one of David's mighty men, one of, one of the, the close ones, that, that almost like an honor guard, that group of really highly trained soldiers, uh, the ones that really had this really high devotion to the king. But David took Bathsheba to himself. She conceived a child. David sought to cover that sin by, again, drawing somebody else into his sin. That's why he calls Uriah back from the battlefield and says, hey, Uriah, how's things going? Oh, they're doing okay. Okay, well, good, thanks. Go on home. Because he hoped that he would sleep with his wife, but Uriah had greater honor than David. He says, how could I do that when the rest of my brothers are out there fighting? And so Uriah slept at David's door, outside David's door. So David tries it again the next night. He tries to get him drunk. Hey, go on home to your wife. No, I can't do that. Uriah, that soldier, was showing greater honor, greater integrity than David was at that point in time, because David was scrambling. David was scrambling to cover up this sin. David sought a way to destroy then this whole thing. He sought in a way to destroy one actually whose morals were an absolute affront to his own immorality. He had Uriah murdered there on the battlefield. Perhaps now the sin will be hidden. Maybe now people would think, well, maybe Uriah did have time, but I don't think that that was going to work because to make certain, make sure all of his bases were covered. Once Uriah was dead, he brought Bathsheba into his own harem. 
David took Bathsheba in, and once again, he thought that he had his sin hidden. And then in chapter 12, again, the Lord speaks to the prophet Nathan. What all he told Nathan, I don't know. But when Nathan came to David, I believe that he had pretty complete understanding of what had taken place. And when he confronts David with his sin, I won't go through the whole story of how he does that. Most of you know it. But when he confronts David with his sin, David has three different choices he could make. And this is for you and I. When our sin has been confronted, we have one of three choices to make. We can kill the messenger, we can deny the sin, or we can confess and be broken by the Lord. None of those were going to be easy. Each of them would have their own ramifications, their own consequences to them. But the only one which really carried any kind of hope for future peace, for future usefulness in the kingdom was the latter of the three. Every time we sin, we have the same three choices. We could kill the messenger. What I'm speaking about is we could close off the word of God in our lives. We could stop reading the word of God because when I read it, man, it brings conviction to my sin. I stay away from my Christian friends because, man, they're always talking about, you know, how how good it is to be a believer and how sweet the Lord is. Man, I'm convicted every time I go. I I don't go to church anymore because, man, when I I go there, man, man, it just seems like the Holy Spirit's just ripping me apart. No, so I'm going to kill the messenger. I'm going to stay away from that. I'm going to stop listening. I'm going to stop fellowshipping. How long can one continue to remain under the teaching of God's word and still remain in the sin? It's much easier just to remove yourself and to continue to sin. Or you can deny the sin. We can try to hide our sin through denial or or, or, or cover up, and yet the problem is God's word remains true. Be sure your sin will find you out. We can try and hide it. We can try and hide it. And we may go years and years, but beloved, God's word remains true. Be sure your sin will find you out. Or we could finally come to that point confessing and being broken before God. And that's the most difficult one. It is the most difficult one because we have to have humility, absolute humility and absolute transparency before God and sometimes before each other. But you know what? That is the one with the greatest reward. That is the one with the greatest opportunity for future hope, for future peace in our lives. Fortunately, David chose the latter. He chose to confess his sin and repent. And I'm going to close with this because of time. Take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 51, if you would. Psalm 51. This is the prayer of David after Nathan has pointed out his sin. Rather than kill the messenger, rather than deny his sin, David writes Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. 
Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, David knew that only God could wash him and make him clean. He knew that he couldn't clean himself up. He said, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Beloved, when we hide our sin, when we try to cover up our sin, when we try to kill the messenger and stay away from the word and stay away from the people of the word, it brings death to us. Verse 12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud for your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be blessed with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. One last time in the life of David, we see a major mistake in the very last chapters. He does a census of the people. You don't really know for sure all surrounding that and why. But the speculation is that in David's older age, he just started depending upon his power and his authority more than realizing, you know what? Rather it be few or many, God is over all. God is the victor. So he does this census. and So God brings judgment on him. In the midst of that judgment, actually it's the people that suffer because a plague comes on the people of Israel. and Literally thousands are dying until finally the Lord tells the death angel to stop. And they call for David to offer up a sacrifice. And David goes there and he's at the vineyard and all of it, another man. And he says, look, I've got, I've got oxen, I've got wood. Uh, here, you can, you can use these to offer. And in the midst of all of that, David says, no, I'm going to buy them from you. Thank you for offering them to, you know, to, to give them to me. But the fact is, is uh, I need to buy it from you. Because his words were, I shall not offer anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. David understood that sacrifice is just that. What do we offer to the Lord in our lives by way of sacrifice? Let me leave you with that. Let me leave you with the fact that God requires all of our lives, not a portion, not a chamber, not a room, not a day or an hour, but he requires all of our lives. And he's a jealous God. The great thing is, is when we're obedient to that, we're the ones that get blessed. Because this world has nothing to offer compared to the good pleasure of our great God. Open 
Have you noticed a theme weaving its way through Pastor David's messages and really through the Bible? That theme is salvation. It's Jesus. From the very beginning, God planned for His Son to come save the world from its sins. You find this plan ingrained in His Word, in the lives of the key people of Scripture, and in the words of truth each book provides. We're so glad you're on this journey with us. Through the Bible, we pray you're finding Jesus not just in the text, but in your everyday life, too. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you'll be able to listen online at theopenword.com. There's several messages there, in fact, and many of them go even more in-depth through a verse-by-verse study of each individual book of God's Word. That website again is theopenword.com. Before our time is up with you today, we'd like to turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick request for you, our listener. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I wanted to take a moment and ask you to be praying for the ministry of The Open Word. I know God is working through the messages I've been able to share, and He's opening hearts to His love every step of the way. As Chris was saying, this book I'm teaching from is just filled with grace, and I want everyone to know about it. Would you pray that more and more people would come to know the saving grace of Jesus? Would you pray too for all of us who are creating the Open Word program? We want to keep focused on Jesus, not on us. Thanks so much for praying, and thanks for joining me today on The Open Word. Make us more.